Welcome to St. Paul's this evening. I'm Tricia Hillis, the canon pastor here, and it will be my very great pleasure to welcome both our speakers shortly. But first, for those of you who may not have been to one of our events before, let me explain a little of how it works. In a moment, Bishop Richard Harries and Loretta Mingella will speak. They'll be addressing the reality of what we all know, that life is at once both terrible and wonderful, both beautiful and appalling. And we'll be thinking about how we live with this contradiction. And as we do so, wondering if we can still believe in a God of truth and beauty and goodness. After Bishop Richard and Loretta have spoken, we'll have plenty of time to share in questions. And we hope you have many questions. And as you do, would you please write them down on your, the back of your program? And if you hold it up, someone, as if by magic, will come and collect it. We'll collect questions until about 7.40. It would help if you could please keep them brief and, most of all, legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag SufferingAndGod. Just type in your question, include that hashtag SufferingAndGod, and we will find it. It helps if you follow us on Twitter. It's at St. Paul's Learning, and the details are on your program. Your question again as if by magic, will be sent up to the laptop here, and I will endeavour to put as many of them as possible to our guests. We'll end at 8 o'clock. There's a bookstall over here where you can buy Bishop Richard's new book about this subject, and he's kindly said that he will sign copies too, and you can find him and talk to him over there. There'll also be a chance to find out more about Christian Aid this evening and their transforming work. And now it gives me real pleasure to introduce our speakers. Richard Harries was the 41st Bishop of Oxford and is simply one of the most distinguished Christian thinkers of our time. Rowan Williams has called him one of the truly great and memorable figures of the 20th and 21st century in the Church of England. An honorary professor of theology at King's College London, he also sits as a crossbencher in the House of Lords, contributing to lawmaking on some of the great ethical issues of our day. Passionate and knowledgeable about a huge range of things, he has given his energy to issues such as nuclear disarmament, peace, the arts, business morality, social responsibility, embryology, and interfaith dialogue, amongst many others. There are too many distinguished lines on his CV to mention, but something we found particularly jaw-dropping was that as a new bishop, he took the church commissioners to court for investing the church's money unethically. He lost, but they still changed their policy. The author of over 20 academic and popular books, 
We're here to think and talk about the subject of his latest, the beauty and the horror, searching for God in a suffering world. It's the fruit of a lifetime of reflection, thinking, experience, and prayer. We're really delighted that he's joined us tonight. And Loretta Mingala is Christian Aid's chief executive officer. She holds responsibility for the charity's strategic direction and plans and programs here and around the world. A lawyer by training, she first practiced as a criminal litigator and then moved into financial regulation, becoming the chief executive of the Financial Services Compensation Scheme and oversaw the payment of over 21 billion in compensation to victims of bank and other financial failures, for which she was an awarded an OBE in 2010. Which, incidentally, Loretta, gives you the right to get married in St. Paul's Cathedral. Alas, too late. <laughs> she is a trustee of the Disasters Emergency Committee, a member of the Church of England's Ethical Investment Advisory Group, and the day after tomorrow will be installed as honorary canon of Salisbury Cathedral. Loretta, they got to you first. Passionate about justice and formidably effective. She's far from desk-bound and still goes out to work herself in some of the places where people live amongst some of the hardest lives in the world. I am delighted to welcome both of them here tonight. Would you please join me in welcoming them? As you may know, Kidnapping of aid workers is very much on the rise. So as I travel around the world seeing Christian Aid's work, I'm especially glad that I've been given some serious training about how to conduct myself if it happens to me. Apparently, the key thing to remember is to try to strike up a relationship with your kidnappers because then they find it harder to maintain the distance that is required to treat you as badly as they otherwise might. My personal track record after six and a half years of visits to Christian aid programs around the world, no kidnappings, and to be honest, barely any physical discomfort at all. But it is simply not possible to be human and to emerge unscathed. What I have witnessed all too closely has been the grotesque suffering of others. What do you think of when you think of the word suffering? My mind goes to the bombing in Syria, typhoons in the Philippines, floods in Malawi, earthquakes in Nepal, Ebola in Sierra Leone, extreme poverty and humiliation driven by caste discrimination in India, Routine sexual violence against women and girls the world over, I could go on. And there's also the more insidious violence in which you and I participate. The structural violence of economic and political systems which are stubbornly weighted against the poor 
fueling climate change and wreaking environmental havoc as they go. Indeed, to work in the aid sector is to encounter a litany of suffering morning, noon and night. Of course, I see evidence of suffering as a result of what some people would call random events and insurance companies like to call acts of God. I also see everywhere suffering in which our human fingerprints are fully traceable, whether by action or inaction. Why on earth does God allow all this? I want to lay something of this suffering before you, not to shock you, not to generate guilt, but I hope in the end to shed some light on why my faith in Jesus Christ is still as strong now as when I started running Christian Aid back in 2010. Let me take you first to Haiti to meet Prospery Raymond, the country manager of our programme there. Of course, he is very busy at the moment with Hurricane Matthew, and I'll come back to that. But I want first to speak of events which took place several years ago now. On the last day of my visit to Haiti in 2011, Prospery took me to where the Christian Aid Office had stood until the day of the huge earthquake the year before. We stood in front of a large pile of rubble, the dimensions of an office building still just discernible. When the earthquake struck, he was trapped by falling masonry in his office on the ground floor. The first floor collapsed into the ground floor. Much of the ground floor collapsed into the ground. Prospery himself was rescued by a group of young boys who were passing by. It was a task requiring strength and delicacy in equal measure. The masonry around him had become so precariously balanced that every slight movement risked bringing it down on top of him. In the hour and a half it took to free him, he said he learnt the true meaning of the words heart in your mouth because his heartbeat was so loud that it appeared to be coming from just below his tongue. Extracted at last, what would you have done? You and I might have gone home at that point, but not Prospery. He set about rescuing Evelyn, a staffer from our Dutch sister agency with whom we shared office space. She was by this time trapped below ground with only a small opening through which they could see that she was very seriously hurt. After seven hours or so, they managed to pull her out by her broken shoulders and Prospery himself carried her to the hospital. Not a long walk in normal circumstances, but these were not normal circumstances. It was a case of picking out a winding path along the roads, stepping over the dead and walking around the dying. Every so often, he'd put Evelyn down for a rest and people would die around them and he'd pick her up and start again. After giving her over to hospital staff, what next? You and I might have gone home at that point, but not Prospery. He turned round and thought to himself, look what has happened to my country. It's time to mount the Christian aid relief effort. And that's what Prospery did next. 
The Haiti earthquake of 2010 claimed over 200,000 lives and left one and a half million people displaced. I spoke to many survivors when I was there and heard many harrowing stories. But I also heard many extraordinary stories of generosity, hospitality and welcome. Haiti is one of the poorest countries on earth. And yet, in the rural areas where people have very little, more often than not, what they had, they were willing to share with family, friends, and strangers too, who arrived in their thousands from Port-au-Prince and the other areas hardest hit. My heart sank when these people arrived at my door looking for help, one woman told me. I had no idea how I, I would cope if I took them in, but I knew I had to take them in and give them what I could. What is the story we tell ourselves about the Haiti earthquake? Is it most convenient to put it in a book cover marked a story of suffering? Because for me, it was a story of suffering and a story in which human beings showed themselves hugely capable of courage, sacrifice and love. Is our narrative just about the horror or the beauty and the horror? And what I have come to understand is that extraordinary selflessness in response to extreme adversity is not the exception, rather it is the norm. Indeed, on my very first field visit in 2010, I travelled to Kenya to the slums outside Nairobi to see some of our sanitation work there. I met Evelyn, spokeswoman for her community in the Matapeni slum. Her family had moved from a rural area of Kenya to Nairobi, victims of a changing climate which had made farming unproductive and ultimately unsustainable. The Matapeni community lacked a clean water supply, any functioning toilets or showers. Sewage washed into the slum huts when it rained. Disease was rife. Evelyn led me by the hand around the slum, helped me avoid slipping off the narrow and rickety planks over the non-operative drains. Finally, she invited me into her home, a hut not much bigger than our garden shed. Nine people lived there. It was very dark. Four eyes peered out of the darkness. Two young boys, too hungry to walk to school. In a bed in the corner dying, Evelyn's father, she was unmarried and she really wanted to preserve herself but she didn't know how they would afford to bury him. It took me a while to understand her meaning, that she was contemplating the imminent possibility of trading her virginity to pay to bury her own father. I asked her how she kept going and she said her faith kept her going, that each morning she thanked God for bringing her through another night and giving her another day. 
and that she'd received some paralegal training and was now a community advisor, which, although unpaid, gave her a lot of pleasure as she helped others in the community with their own problems. I told her I was a lawyer as well, and she gave me this insight, this gift. So you see, she said, we are the same. And then I remember it's because with the backing of so many supporters and working with local partners and communities in poverty, we can and we do and we will make a difference for Evelyn and millions of people like her every year. And if I am inspired by the strength of Evelyn and her willingness to make herself vulnerable and to be a spokeswoman for her community despite her own suffering, then maybe I can follow her in my own very small way, seek to do something of the same. If the sense of connectedness I felt with Evelyn in Nairobi was such a gift, then a trip to Cambodia highlighted the extreme danger which subsists in the absence of connectedness. For in 2013, I visited Tool Sleng, the school in Phnom Penh taken over by the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s and used as a place to eliminate around 20,000 Cambodian people. The museum there houses walls of individual photographs of those held there, taken as they were admitted, each wearing their own number in large print. Each person catalogued against this number, their height carefully measured, the bureaucracy presumably helping to ensure that a victim could be tortured and executed not as a person, but as a set of statistics. Ten so-called security regulations for behaviour within tool slang are still displayed outside. Security regulation number six reads as follows. While getting lashes or electrification, you must not cry at all. This is what evil looks like. The infrastructure of disconnection, which provides such an effective framework for dehumanisation in which it is possible to take so many lives. So why, God, why does God allow this kind of evil and suffering in the world? It's, of course, an, an immensely difficult question, which I'm sure Bishop Richard will illuminate much better than I. But I believe that acting out of love, God declines to control our world and our lives because the great gift of humanity implies that we must have choices to do good or evil, to love or not to love, because love must be freely given or it is not love. And that means God risks our choosing not to love. To put it another way, as C.S. Lewis did in The Problem of Pain, try to ex exclude the possibility of suffering which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. God shows us in the gift of Jesus Christ, freely given to suffer and to die, just what it means to love. Thankfully, after my visit to the killing field of Tul Sleng, I saw elsewhere in Phnom Penh something of what love looks like too. 
There I met a tiny woman in her 70s who had been jailed the year before for standing at the front of a large march in Phnom Penh, singing hymns in protest about land which had been wrongly taken from her community. She still had her own house, but others were suffering having lost theirs, and she was showing her love and solidarity with them. Presumably just because she was at the front, this tiny woman. The riot police took an electric baton to her in front of the crowd before they jailed her for 30 days. Christian Aid's partner had secured her release. I met with her in her home, which is now a safe place for others still getting together and protesting about the taking of their land, trying to get proper compensation for their loss of shelter and livelihoods. She hasn't stopped trying to help her neighbours. She's clear that she will continue to speak up as necessary. If there is horror in the brutality she experienced, there is beauty in her protest. The community loves her for it, is fortified by it. In a bleak situation, it gives them hope. What I see in the selflessness of communities in crisis and in poverty, in our partners and my colleagues, in our supporters who continue to give and act and pray for our work, speaks to me of a God who does not promise us a pain-free existence, but longs for us not to suffer alone, who walks with us even in the darkest valley, even if we do not recognise him there. What I see challenges the council of despair that says all suffering is inevitable, that we can't make a difference, that we can't help build that just and peaceful world we long for, where people are free from fear and can hope to thrive and not just survive. The hero and heroines in my stories this evening challenge the narrative of disconnection in which violence and injustice and poverty thrive. And we are all free to join them. Because when the pain we see looks more like the pain of others than our own, time and again we're given choices and chances to step into that place of pain and fill it with love. Each one of us can say, I am a person who cares about friend and stranger. I am because they are. We each can say I'm interested in others because in every way that matters we are the same, we are connected. And when they are suffering, we cry out. I would say to inhabit this radical mutuality is the duty and the joy at the heart of our faith. My personal experience of suffering bears this out. The unexpected death of my brother Anthony when he was only 54 made me clear as though for the first time that what really counts in a person is not their standing, their worldly achievements or financial position. As an outstanding filmmaker, he had all of that in spades, but of course, that isn't what we miss. We miss him. 
Because what really counts in a person is their unique beauty as a human being, made in the image of God, of inherent dignity and infinite worth and capable of so much love. Every person we meet, every person we do not meet, has this beauty and potential. Every one irreplaceable. Someone very close to Ant and me, an atheist, asked me in anger when Ant died, so where is your God now? It was a rhetorical question, but I felt strongly that God was very close by. Because as a financial services lawyer, as I then was, I felt the need more urgently than ever to reorientate my life, to seek an opportunity to do something more to help people realize their unique beauty and potential. So the extraordinary and searing pain of grief became also an epiphany and a liberation. The beauty and the horror, if you like. Last week at Christian Aid, we began our preparations for Hurricane Matthew. Evacuations were arranged, supplies of food and other essentials prepositioned. And in London and in Haiti, we stood ready to respond as the hurricane approached. Prospery emailed from Haiti to thank us for all the support from London. We are at the beginning of this journey, he said. We will continue to save life and support the vulnerable people affected. The team is happy to move things forward. Thanks again for your valuable support and commitment, guys. Keep Haiti in your prayers for another few days. And then in Creole, he wrote, Encourage, which he translated simply as, let's do it. We can see the suffering of others as something to blame God for. But the suffering of others is so often a reflection of human failing, sometimes our own. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides in each moment an opportunity to turn a page, a call to action we can all answer. And the consequences if we feed the hungry, house the homeless, fight injustice, they're spelt out in my favourite bit of Isaiah, chapter 58. God will shed his own glorious light upon you. He will heal you. Your godliness will lead you forward. Goodness will be a shield before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, Here I am. power of the story, as you know. Well done. You want me at that microphone? Or? Yes, please. So, thank you. Good evening, everyone. And thank you, Loretta. Loretta has reminded us of the reality of human suffering and 
of the response to it by Christian aid. And whatever I say, we must not go far from the fact that there is suffering in the world and we can do something to respond to it. And I know that many people here do support Christian aid. But sometimes, like this evening, we want to take time aside to think how we can reconcile so much which is appalling in our world today with our view of life, particularly if we already have a belief in God. My own view is that religious belief is essentially natural. That might sound very odd in our present society when so many people are skeptical. But if you take history as a whole and the world as a whole, most people find it natural for the heart and mind to move to the idea of a good and loving power behind the universe. But the great stumbling block, of course, is the terrible reality of evil and the indiscriminate nature of suffering. That is the great question, in my view. The alleged clash between science and religion is a totally spurious one. As I've sometimes said to Richard Dawkins, Richard, there's so many good arguments against religion, why do you keep dragging science into it? <laughs> it is the big question. The traditional answers, I'm afraid, do not work for us. The traditional answers in Christianity and many other religions of the world is that suffering has been sent either to punish us or to test us. But that is impossible to hold today where suffering afflicts the innocent as much as the guilty and it is totally indiscriminate in its effects. And it's important to note that there is a protest in the Bible as well as sometimes an acceptance of that view. Above all, of course, in the book of Job, but also elsewhere, the Bible is about protest against things as they are, as well as an acceptance of things as they are. We have to begin today somewhere totally else. Quite simply, that God has given us a life of our own. That is what it means to be created, whether it is an ant, an amoeba, or you or me. God said, let there be. And we also know that God created all things good. Christianity has rejected any idea that there is an equal and opposite evil power to God, technically called dualism. Christianity has always 
championed the idea that all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, are created good by a good God. So what's gone wrong? First, and of course this is a very obvious point, we've given, given, given free choice and we make wrong choices. Some people think that God could have created us at once free and always free to choose the good so that we always choose the good. We haven't got time to go into all that, but I think that is a totally misleading idea. So the world has been made good. We've been given free choice. And I believe that we are within however narrow limits genuinely free to direct our future. And we sometimes make wrong choices. And this fact actually accounts for far more evil in the world than you might think. For example, when the oceans rise, who suffer most? The poor of Bangladesh, because the rich can afford to live elsewhere. When earthquakes come, who suffers most? The poor, because the rich, of course, build concrete reinforced forced earthquake resistant houses. So the fact that because of all our wrong choices we live in an unjust world, that accounts for a fair amount of the evil in the world. But in addition to what is technically called that moral evil, there is also material evil. Earthquakes, volcanoes, diseases, these are not in themselves caused by human choice for the most part. They are material uh, evils. Here I think we have to reflect that in order for you and I to emerge as persons, as thinking persons, it's necessary for us to live in a stable and reliable environment. We must be able to assume certain things which are true today, like the sun rising, will also happen tomorrow, at least somewhere in the world. And if God was continually intervening in order to prevent human disasters, we would live in a kind of Alice in Wonderland world. If the laws of gravity did not pertain, I might suddenly float up to the dome or drop down. It is necessary for human minds, rational human minds to emerge for there to be a stable environment. And therefore, there's a very strict limit to the number of miracles that God can bring about without disrupting that fundamental need for a stable order. For instance, if you're driving along uh, and a child suddenly runs in front of you, normally you would have hit that child, but a miracle is performed so that you judder to a halt that would be wonderful, but what about the car behind you or the car behind that? 
it would have implications and repercussions throughout the world. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't perform miracles, but what I'm saying is that it is absolutely essential for there to be human life as we know it, for there to be a stable, regular, predictable environment. And that environment, as we know with things like volcanoes and earthquakes, can be a very harsh and indiscriminate one. There's nothing wrong with volcanoes and earthquakes in themselves. They're part of a, a cooling planet. And it's the cooling planet which has allowed for the possibility of human life. If it was colder, we would not be here. If it was hotter, we would not be here. But having said all that, and I do think it is necessary to say some of those things to give one at least some glimmer of understanding as to why, if we're going to be here at all, the world has some of the characteristics that it does. But still we can say, ah, yes, but. Camus, in his wonderful novel, The Plague, depicts a priest and a doctor working night and day in order to tend the sick who are suffering from this plague. Both are equally moved. And the doctor, Dr. Rear, says to Father Panglass, I can never love a scheme of things in which children are put to to torture. So, whatever rational arguments there might be of the kind that I have suggested, that doctor in that novel is saying it is still unacceptable to have a world like that. The point was put even more sharply by Ivan Karamazov in Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, where Ivan tells some terrible stories of cruelty to children. And then he says, Alyosha, it's not God I don't believe in. It's just that I return him the ticket. And that, it seems to me, is the real modern protest. That whatever we say in the end, the world as we know it is unacceptable. Now, it seems to me that the only way of approaching this is by asking ourselves, despite everything, despite what you might have gone through or you know your family have gone through, bless God for being. Are we able to bless God for being? Now, the Christian hope, and I myself think it's impossible to address this question without bringing in the distinctive Christian proclamation that God was in Christ, entering into the agony of the world, that Christ has risen from the dead, and that he has in mind for us not simply this world with all its travail, 
but life with him in an unimaginable future. I don't think it's impossible myself to be able to continue to hold a belief in a loving and wise God behind the universe without bringing in that distinctive Christian proclamation. Now, Ivan Karamazov said that whatever wonderful future that might be, whatever reconciliation might take place beyond this world between victim and perpetrator of the crime, still, he thought, God was not justified in creating the world. But it seems to me we can't quite say that because we don't know, we simply don't know whether that the end of God's long purpose in whatever future there might be, we don't know whether everyone who's lived will be able to bless God for their being. There is a hope that they will, but of course we don't know. So in the end, a Christian, it seems to me, lives with those wonderful, wonderful words at the end of St. Paul's great hymn to love. Faith, hope, and love. These three last forever, and the greatest of these is love. We live our life on that basis, with faith, that is, trust in God, and a hope that ultimately God's loving purpose will prevail, and rooted in day-by-day -day practical love. Because we have to ask, what is the vocation and destiny of us human beings? If it was simply to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, well, it would be very difficult to believe in a loving God behind this world. But supposing our vocation as human beings is what the New Testament says that it is, which is to be filled with all the fullness of God. Loretta told us those stories of people in the midst of disaster acting with courage and love. That is the life of God within them. And our vocation and destiny from a Christian point of view is to be so transformed by Christ that we are like that. Finally, there is a wonderful poem of Edwin Muir called One Foot in Eden, which contrasts the sort of idyllic world of Eden uh, with the world as we know it. And he says in that poem, strange blessings never in paradise fall from these beclouded skies. What had Eden ever to say of faith and hope and love and pity? These strange blessings, this faith, 
and this hope and this love are the very life of God within us because that, that is our vocation and destiny. And it's only in the light of that understanding of what it is to be a human being, it seems to me that we can answer that question with which we are thinking about uh, this evening. So I think that at that point, it'd be very good for Loretta and I to hear what your thoughts are uh, and to try to address some of the issues which you feel perhaps we have not yet fully addressed. Thank you both very, very much indeed. And questions have started to come in. If you have not yet asked a question, please remember you can write it down. And if you hold it aloft, someone will come and find you. Or you can still uh, send them in using the hashtag sufferingandgod, and we will pick them up. Some of the questions that have come in already are asking about if what we've said is so, what is the role then of prayer? Uh, what is the role of intercession? And what might God do in response to prayer? I wonder if either of you would like to particularly pick up on that. Do you want to go, Loretta, or...? I don't mind diving in with a lay person's response to that question. Excellent, thank um, you. Do you want us here or do you want us... Yeah, no, We're yeah, fine yeah, here. Yeah, right. Thank you. I, I think it's important that I sort of rest this in my own personal experience um, for, for authenticity. I only know that you know, in, the, in my deepest suffering um, when Ant died that although it was terribly, terribly painful, I also felt exceptionally held. And I am certain that the, the business of praying and knowing that I was being prayed for was part of the reason why I could feel so still. Um, and um, for me, it's about tuning in. Um, Prayers about tuning in to to what God's purposes and, and thoughts may be, um, and feeling joined with Him, um, which um, I, I felt was exceptionally valuable. Um, so I speak from personal experience and think that prayer is essential, um, essential for and with those who are suffering. I think I would simply want to echo what Loretta has said, by my experience, prayer for me is day by day seeking to align my mind and my thoughts and my life, my activities, with the good purpose of God. And I believe that we human beings are connected to one another at a far deeper level than we normally imagine. And it really is important to pray for other people, 
people who are prayed for know that they are prayed for. Sometimes we've all had feelings that it is important at particular kind times to pray for certain people. Uh, and you discover afterwards, yes, they were in particular need at that time. We are connected to one another at a deeper level than we can imagine. And that in aligning ourselves with the good purpose of God and lifting other people into that good purpose, God is working through us in relation to them. Certainly when I have traveled and been with others, they've asked for two things. One is tell our story and the other is pray for us. So that sense of being united around the world and the difference that that makes. The person who asked that question did ask though, what does God do in response? Well, I think, let me tell if I may, the story of that wonderful uh, Rabbi Hugo Grin. Hugo Grin was in Auschwitz as a young boy. And one Yom Kippur, he was trying to celebrate the Jewish ritual in as, as the best way he could. And he saw in the sky some smoke trails. And he thought that this was God coming to rescue him. And then he suddenly realized it wasn't and he broke down and wept and wept and wept. And then he suddenly realized that God was there with him. And as he said at the end, the question is not where is God, but where is man? He came to believe that God was there with him. And of course, that is fundamental to our Christian proclamation that God in Christ, God who became a human being, is there in and through all human situations. And at the end of that quote, which you quote in your, in your book, it, it's there and was particularly striking for me. It was the first time I'd come across it. And that question, and where is man, mm. being the key question mm. about Auschwitz at that point. Mm. When I shared that with some of my friends, I was so struck by it. They asked the question, and where is man today? which brought me very much to what you were saying earlier about uh, our call to be there and to be present and the work of Christian aid in answering that question and where is man actually there beside. Hmm. Another question. Um, a number of you have asked, if God is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, why does God allow suffering then to happen? Well, I, I, I do think, um, picking up on what Bishop Richard was saying, I, I don't know how many of you have seen the film The Truman Show. Uh, but the, in the film The Truman Show, which is set in, I think, 1950s America in a virtual TV program, 
a real child is born and he doesn't know he's in a TV programme and everybody else but him knows that. He is living in a bubble, literally a bubble, and he tries to get out of it, but of course he can't because he's in a TV show. And there is that moment when he realises that his life has been a fiction and that he hasn't actually been experiencing what it really means um, to know suffering and to know joy. I mean, those things weren't, weren't ever real. They were all controlled. Um, if you were to find that everything about your life was controlled, whether for good or ill, I think it would be the most appalling uh, dystopian thing, um, which the Truman Show kind of illustrates. So I think that why, that's why, to me, a benevolent God allows there to be free will allows there to be both good choices and poor choices and Bishop Richard is quite right in pointing out the limitations of that but nevertheless that's at the core of it for me and so much suffering which we think of as over there and an act of God and nothing to do with evil is in fact a, a product of our own evil even one might say Hurricane Matthew you know these kind of in, extreme weather events they are in fact um, much more likely because of climate change, which isn't in itself man-made. I mean, so, so much of what we see is a product of our own poor choices. Uh, but I think that having those choices is essential to being human. Uh, so um, I, I would rather that than live in a, a world that was entirely controlled. Yes, it, of course, that was the very question that uh, we are discussing this evening and what I tried to address uh, in my talk and indeed the whole of my book is given over to that but if you want an answer in one or two sentences it would be first of all uh, that as far as I can see it's not possible to have the kind of life that you and I value that is feeling, thinking morally choosing human life except in a world which has the kind of conditions for good and evil that we know. And secondly, that the good purpose of God is not just the maximizing of pleasure and the minimizing of pain, important though that is, uh, but it is uh, that we might grow uh, into the very likeness of God. We've been made in the image of God and we've been called to grow into the likeness of God. Uh, and so that the life of God comes to dwell in us and we are transformed from glory uh, to glory. So my answer would have those two parts to it. And I'd just like to add that if, if, you know, what we need to know about God is made manifest in the life and work of Jesus Christ, then Jesus weeps because in the world there is pain. Jesus protests because in the world there is wrongdoing, turns the tables in the temple. Jesus heals because suffering is a part of life. So I, I think... You know, we're, we're given an example of what to expect and how to behave, uh, which is only consistent with a world in which suffering is present. I'm going to bring two questions together, um, which effectively are asking a question around judgment. 
both of you differently have referred to the consequences of human choice and how some of those consequences might be termed evil to a lesser or greater extent. The people who are asking the question say, do you still believe in hell as a place of eternal torment? If not, what happens to those not entering heaven? And almost a prior question, do you believe that God judges and punishes those who cause suffering to others deliberately? Do you want me to have? Mm, thank you. First of all, I don't believe that God sends people to hell. But I do believe that we can create our own hell and a hell for other people, even in the presence of supreme good. I believe that God's purpose is to ceaselessly reach out to us to reconcile all things to his loving purpose. He never gives up on any of us. But if we're genuinely free, we are free to create our own hell, even in the midst of heaven. That's just simply a logical possibility. So we have to live with the tension between God's purpose which is ceaseless, unremitting good will towards each one of us, and the fact that we are always free to choose. And judgment, quite simply, uh, is self-knowledge in the growing presence of the love of God. That's what judgment is. It is coming to an awareness of ourselves and perhaps what we have done to others deliberately or inadvertently. And the full horror of that for some human beings, perhaps for me, must be a kind of judgment. But as T.S. Eliot put it in one of his lines, we are redeemed from fire by fire. We're redeemed from the fire of painful self-knowledge by the fire of divine love. I want to use another film analogy, and I'm, I'm not promoting my brother's films for any family reason, but my brother made an amazing film called The Talented Mr. Ripley, based on a Patricia Highsmith uh, novel. And um, Ripley goes around killing one person after another, and he just keeps getting away with it. But ultimately, he has to live with himself, and that is the terrible affliction of being Ripley, he may get away with it, but he has to live with himself, and he finds himself um, in, a, in, in what he describes as a dark room with nowhere to go, which is in his own, the, the evil of his own heart. Um, Rowan Williams 
I'm not quoting him just because he's my boss either. Um, uh, but in his last sermon, uh, Christmas sermon at Canterbury when he was Archbishop, said this, acknowledge who you are. That's the truest heroism and the hardest. And I, that really resonated with me. Um, you know, if you really look into your own heart, it's not, in my experience anyway, um, quite pretty enough. And it is extremely difficult to look your own shortcomings in the eye. And that's what happens to you when your faith is weak. But when your faith is strong, there is a place to go with that, to seek forgiveness and to know that it will be there for you. So I think the bleakest place to be is in that place where you acknowledge who you are, but you don't acknowledge the healing, the reconciliation that's available in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, I think, the darkest possible place to be. So in response to that, both of you are raising the question and the, the need for self-knowledge. In your book, Bishop Richard, you talk at, at one point about our propensity for self-delusion um, and, and making the point that some of the, the greatest evils have been perpetuated by those who've deceived themselves um, and those who've been colluded who have colluded with them in thinking that they were doing good or even serving God. Um, in the light of that propensity for self-delusion, would you be able to say anything more about how we acquire the sort of self-knowledge that you've been talking about? Oh, that's um, an interesting one. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose perhaps have a few candid friends. Oh, I have. <laughs> who tell us what they think of us. Uh, it's probably uh, a, a, good, a good start. Um, time on one's own, quiet, I would have thought is absolutely essential. Uh, cut out all the extraneous noise, the buzzing around in the mind, and just simply being quiet and still before God, emptying out one's mind and being quiet and waiting upon, upon God. I think that is essential. Um, so that and, um, and having a few honest friends probably. I could lend you my two children. Um, <laughs> they're extremely good at telling me where I fall short if I don't spot it. Um, and I'm quite sure they could perform that service for any of you. <laughs> I'm aware that John, um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has written a book called Not in God's Name and starts with the question about whether religious people in particular are prone to self-delusion. I'll leave us with that thought. A further question here. A number of people are asking about the suffering of the world as it affects animals, not um, only 
us as creatures, but the creatures with whom we share our planet. The question here, does God see animal suffering in the same way as human suffering? If so, is this because animals may have souls? Well, I think this is a very difficult one. I don't, and I know that some people here will be particularly distressed uh, by the amount of animal suffering uh, in the world. And I don't think I've got anything very special or striking to say on it. Obviously, we would draw, most of us would want to drink, draw a distinction between the higher vertebrates with developed nervous systems like the great apes, which clearly in some respect are close to human beings, uh, and uh, other very, very simple one or two cellular structures, amoebas, and, and, and so on, who clearly have no nervous system and, seem, and, and see, appear to have no capacity to feel in the same way that, that, we, that we do. C.S. Lewis, when he addressed this question, thought uh, that perhaps some animals who had developed a particular relationship with human beings did have a future beyond this world uh, in relation to human beings. Uh, but I think myself, I would have to be uh, agno really agnostic about this question because it's very difficult to know where we would get any kind of sure answer. I'd just add to that. I mean, I don't know the answer to whether or not animals have souls, but I'm, I think it's absolutely consistent with our understanding that God, um, you know, m made the world and saw that it was good, uh, that it, it's quite wrong to treat um, creation as disposable, um, whichever aspect of creation you're talking about. Um, the, um, the, the treating of the environment as something that is di um, dispensable, that we're free to degrade, not consistent with being given the world on trust. Uh, and I think that we are called upon to, to recognize and value all forms of life. A question that um, I might particularly invite you to, to begin with, Loretta. Someone is asking us uh, to think about how would you explain God's love to the people of Haiti as you referred to their experience in 2010 and presently, as they experience one natural disaster after another? Um, when I'm with communities affected by poverty or crisis, whatever kind, I don't try to justify what's happened to them. I wouldn't begin to do that, but I do try to share with them how much the people who make it possible for me to visit care about what is happening to them, uh, want to understand how it is for them, want to be helpful to them in whatever way that would be for them and therefore really want to know how it is and really want to know what would make a difference. And that those people are praying for them, those people are raising funds for them, those people are willing to speak up 
to politicians and to business leaders and to others on their account. And all I can tell you is that that means a huge amount to people who are suffering and in poverty. One of um, my team has been out with a couple of our supporters out to Colombia in the past week. And of course, they've had these events in Colombia where the peace agreement has been signed, but the referendum went um, unexpectedly against it. The people that they met were just so, you know, so comforted by the visit, by the recognition of what they're going through. People in poverty and crisis want to be seen. They want to be heard. And my, in my experience, when they are seen and heard, that is the beginning for them of a process of healing. Uh, so although I can't justify their suffering to them, I know that what I can bring them is so often something that they find really valuable. I think there's also an, an alongside to that, which you've addressed, actually, as you spoke with us, which was not so much us explaining God's love to, to someone in that situation, but actually hearing from them of what God's love means which is a very different approach. Hmm. Someone has asked a very personal question, and I'm aware that Loretta in particular, as you were talking about your own experience, you spoke very personally. How can someone experiencing a crisis of faith reconcile suffering with God? I think it depends a little bit upon what form this crisis might take. I think people have different kinds of different kinds of of crisis, don't they? Um, but of course, it is a standard part of. Christian teaching uh, that we all as human beings, particularly people for whom prayer is important, do go through dark periods in their life. Um, and uh, it is a genuine dark, dark period. And I don't think there is any answer, if one is serious and doesn't want to lose one's faith, to, as it were, hang in there, uh, waiting upon God, even in the darkness. That great French mystic and philosopher, Simona Vale, said about Christ's words on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There, she said, we have true proof that Christ was divine. She saw in that darkness, in that sense of abandonment, 
the revelation of the glory of God. So it may be that that crisis of faith, that real darkness, and it's not in any way to be underestimated, actually may be of the most profound significance. The significance, of course, we can't possibly grasp at that time. And I'd, I'd just add to that, um, you know, from my own experience of, you know, first 20 years of my life being brought up in a Catholic family and then 20 years of my life in the wilderness uh, in a 20-year crisis of faith um, and, and went through quite a lot in that time. Um, I'm glad that by accident I found my way back into a church. It happened to be a, an Anglican church and is now my church and has been for the last 15 years because God was still waiting for me there. And uh, um, I, I wasn't sure that he was around anymore, but he was very much waiting for me to come back. So I would echo, hang on in there. Um, maybe you can't reconcile it for now, but keep reflecting, keep listening, and um, I hope that that that's something that you're able to work through. Another of us asked a question which almost builds on, on the that question and your answers. The question was, at the logical end of Job's suffering was that he earned a one-to-one -one with God. <laughs> Is the purpose of pain, therefore, to rid us of religiosity in the light of your previous answers about uh, darkness and the reality, might you see some truth in that? The purpose of pain being to rid us of religiosity. I'm a bit chary about talking about the purpose of pain in metaphysical or theological terms. The purpose of pain from a physiological point of view, of course, is to remind us uh, or to prompt us to the fact that there is something going wrong with our body uh, and we need to remedy it. That if you feel pain when you get near a hot stove, it's a warning bell to move your finger away from the, the stove. So pain has a very proper physical, physiological uh, purpose. Um, and I'm a bit chary about talking uh, about pain having some kind of, uh, as being a kind of direct part of the purpose of God towards us. I think sometimes when people go through a difficult experience, as uh, we all do go through difficult experiences, we can, we can learn things from that difficult experience. But I don't like to think of God, as it were, designing difficult experiences for us in order that we might learn things. I don't believe in that kind of God. And I would agree with that and say that I believe pain not to be purposeful in that sense, but to be, in effect, a fact of life, to be acknowledged um, rather than, um, you know, being intended to achieve something. I'd like to ask a question myself, if you'll bear with me. Um, 
I've heard it said that we ought not to say anything about God except that we would dare to say in the presence of children being taken to the gas chambers or those burned in the churches of Rwanda or those who have slipped beneath the waves of the Mediterranean. And sometimes when I come to preach, that's what I remind myself. I ought not to say anything about God except that in which I can say in those people's presence. Do you agree? And is such self-imposed discipline a restriction or is it actually liberating? Do you want to have first go on that? Uh, no. no. Um, I think my own view is that in relation to the situations you've described, uh, Auschwitz or a burning church, you can't say anything. You can't say anything about God. You can only be, there can only be appalled silence uh, and be, uh, being alongside people. That is not is the occasion. I don't believe that is the occasional context where one can say anything at all. Now later on it, it may be possible to say something but I think there's a very great deal to be said, everything to be said in those kind of situations for saying absolutely nothing and that if there are people there you're alongside those people and if God is there God is alongside those people in and through you. My husband made me promise when I took this job. He said, when you go on a field trip, promise me you won't cry in front of people. And because he knows me rather well and knows that I might have a propensity to do that. But when... I meet with people, like when I went to the Philippines after the typhoon Haiyan a couple of years ago, and I rocked up, you know, sometime later and said, so how's it been? All people wanted to talk about was the day of the typhoon, who died, who nearly died, the traumas that they'd been through. And, you know, some people said, I lost all my children, I lost my husband, I lost two of my children, only two survived. Uh, you know, they told the most harrowing stories. Sometimes there is nothing to be said, but you hold hands, you sit with people, and you are alongside, and you acknowledge, and you see them, and you promise them then that you will do what you can to mitigate the effects. And, to, and one woman who asked me in the Philippines, as you know, she said, what are you doing about climate change? And that made me relieved because it gave me something to do in response to that pain. But sometimes, you know, sometimes I just weep with people. And when I was in just outside Rio, an hour outside Rio de Janeiro, where there'd been mudslides that killed thousands of people and no one came except Christian Aid and Christian Aid partners. No one came. Those people were left to bury their own dead. When people spoke to me about that, showed me where their houses had gone, showed me where their families had died, I just wept with people, actually. And I, um, 
You know, I'm heartened by the fact that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. You know, it's okay sometimes just to be alongside people and weep. You were talking about transformation and hope. Let's move to that with a question. Someone's asking, should we be working then now towards love and life before death rather than after death? An aim for change and transformation now. And I would add, and how? Well, absolutely, absolutely. Christian faith offers life now. I think it was a Christian aid slogan a few years, wasn't it? Life, life before, life before death. Um, and Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi, says some wonderful things which I quote uh, in my book. He says in the end that no, none of the kind of theoretical considerations are finally satisfying, and I would uh, agree with that. There are some things to be said which I think are important to say, but in the end, of course, we're still left with questions. Uh, and he said uh, that there is a cognitive dis dissonance between the world as it is and the world as it ought to be, and that distance is bridged not by words but by deed. And I think that is absolutely right. In the end, we come back to deed. We have at Christian Aid a, a sort of three-point plan for how we respond to the poverty and suffering that we see in our world. And we share this with everybody. Um, we ask people to give and act and pray. Um, we think these are the three ways in which everybody can respond. And when it comes to prayer, we provide prayer points if you want. Uh, we provide endless opportunities to give. Um, and, and please do uh, see some of our exhibition this evening um, on our stall. When it comes to acting, speak. Speak to politicians, speak to those around you, speak to businesses about what, is, what you see is wrong with the world. This week is the speak up week of action on climate change. Speak up for the way that, the, that climate change is degrading our world. Tell our politicians that they need to act now uh, to change the way uh, the, the world is working. Speak for the refugee, for the poor and the displaced. Help change the story in this country that says foreigners are not worth as much as people who are from here. These are the sorts of things that can be done now to bring life before death. And that was a Christian aid strapline, you're right, Bishop, and it's come back because we think it sums up rather well what we all should be about. <laughs> Our subject tonight was and has been the beauty and the horror. The poet and writer John O'Donoghue observed that the human soul is hungry for beauty. We seek it everywhere. 
in landscape, music, art, clothes, and furniture, companionship, love, religion, and in ourselves. And you've mentioned earlier, Bishop, that a question is, are we still glad to be alive? I wonder whether we might bless each other in praying for one another that our soul hunger for beauty might be met in Christ and as we serve others in the way that Christian Aid has invited us to consider we might. Thank you both very, very much for sharing with us. I wonder if there's anything last comment that either of you would want to say to sum up where you've got to with us this evening. I think all I would want to say is uh, bless you for coming, bless you for listening, uh, and may good, the good Lord bless us all as we continue to think and pray and act. I'd like to echo Bishop Richard's thanks um, for bearing with us with such a, such a difficult subject. And I'm left this, with this thought that when we think about suffering, we often think of it as something over there, something apart from us, and that the response to it must be something also apart from us. But I think the first and last question must always be, what can we do about it? Thank you. Thank you both, and thank you for coming. Tell people, remind people about the books, will you? Yeah. <laughs> And please do remember that you can find more information about Christian Aid here before you leave. And you can also pick up copies of Bishop Richard's book over here at our bookstall. And I know he'll be delighted to sign them for you. Thank you. I might ask you to sign mine. <laughs>